0: 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be picking up the pace this morning. In fact, we're going to be covering 33% more text than last week. What that means is we're going to do four verses instead of three. (laughs) We're going at this pace because this text is just so rich. God has packed so much into this epistle, this letter to the churches. And so we're going to keep working our way through it. But let me just start with a a really simple but really important question. And I'm sure you've heard it before. Do you know for certain that you have eternal life? Think about that. I mean, do you know that when you die, you will be face to face with the Lord in heaven? Are you certain? Is there any doubt in your mind at all? Well, I think some people would probably say, well... I think I'm going to be in heaven, but I won't really know for sure until I get there. But the thing is, God doesn't want us to live in a state of uncertainty. Because if we're uncertain about eternal life, it's going to have a big impact in our life right here, right now. It's going to affect many, many areas, like our attitude and our outlook, and our decision-making, and our evangelism, and on and on. Think about some of those impacts for a minute. We'll be unsettled over a lot of our circumstances, especially the, the trials that we face, if we don't have that certainty of salvation. We'll be uneasy about some of the decisions we have to make. We'll even be unenthusiastic in our witness to other people. Think about that. When we're absolutely certain that we have eternal life, we can't hold it in. We have to share it. But if we're not certain, we're going to be rather unenthusiastic when it comes to sharing our faith. So I think these are some of the reasons why God wants us to be absolutely certain about our eternal destiny. And that's, I think, a big part of why this letter was written. And so, let's just look again at the key verse. And you know it now. It's First John 5.13. And it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's written to most of us. I write these things to you believers, to you church, so that you may know with absolute certainty. And that's where we get the title for our series in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Absolute Certainty. So, with these things in mind, the message title this morning is going to be Absolute Certainty in Obedience. And we're going to look at 1st John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And I think you'll see three parts to this. First of all, is the knowledge of God in verse 3. The nature of obedience in verses 4 and 5. And then finally, the narrow way of Jesus in verse 6. So, we'll read through the text first. It's short. And then we'll dig into it. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. We know, we're already seeing this, this certainty right here in this passage. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Well, let's, as we dig into this, starting in verse 3, I want to take a look, first of all, at the knowledge of God. Because that's the first thing that I see as we dig into this. The verse, this verse, three, contains what's called a homonym. You know what a homonym is? It's like the same word, spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, but it has two different meanings. That's a homonym. And there's a homonym in here. Let me give you some examples of a homonym in sentence. In a sentence. She's the kind of person who is kind to everyone. See, that word kind has two different meanings. Or this, you should fire the person who started the fire. Same word, two different meanings. So where's the homonym in verse 3? It's the word know. It also has two different meanings. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. So the first know is an intellectual knowledge. We can, we can know this intellectually, and there, there can be certainty. There's no doubt whatsoever. That's the kind of know it's talking about. That's our absolute certainty. We can know. But then the second no is not intellectual knowledge. It's relational knowledge. We can know that we know him. Not know about him. A lot of people know about, know something about God. But this says, we can know him, which is referring to a close, personal, even intimate relationship with the Lord. This, it's speaking of something so personal, in fact, that in the Bible, it's often used, the same word know, to refer to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. That's how close this this relationship is when Mary was told that she would give birth to Jesus she said to the angel how can this be since I do not know a man she's not saying I've never met a man I don't have any male acquaintances she's saying I'm a virgin that's what she's saying there and Matthew's gospel says Joseph didn't know his wife until after Jesus was born That's because Jesus, as we talked about last week, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So that that original sin would not be passed on to him by Joseph. So here's the thing. The goal of the Christian life is not just to know about God. But to actually know God. To know him personally. That's why we always talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To know him. So, when I was 14 years old, my family moved from sunny San Diego, Southern California, to Austin, Texas. And there, I was a a sophomore in high school, and there was a young lady who caught my eye. I didn't know her. I didn't know really anything. Well, I knew something about her. She looked good. (laughs) And she had a beautiful smile, And she had a bright personality. And this was the woman who would eventually become my wife. But I knew very little about her. And as I started talking to other people who knew her, I started to learn a little more about her. I learned that she was really smart. I learned that her dad lived on, they lived on an airport. That her dad had an airplane. That's cool. (laughs) That kind of got my attention. And I got to know some things about her. But it wasn't until right after high school, when we began spending time together, that I began to know her personally. And as we spent that time together, I began to learn a lot about her. I learned that she was a Christian like I was. I learned that we grew up in the exact same church denomination, I began to learn the things that she liked and the things that she didn't like. I began to learn how she would respond to certain situations because I began to know her. I began, I learned from her that she was actually close to getting her pilot's license. Now, that was really cool to me. So here's these two kids. We were like, I think we were both 19 there. Tube socks are going to make a comeback. (laughs) Mark my words. <laughs> Everything goes around and comes back around again at some point. But I got to know Deborah. And it was only two months before we were engaged. And her mom kept. Saying to me over and over again, Paul, you got to give me enough time to make the dress. She knew the announcement was coming from like, I don't know, three weeks in. So, Paul, you got to give me enough time to make the dress. And so I did. We, we planned the wedding six months out. And she made a beautiful dress. And after our wedding, I began to know my wife in a much different way. As we began living together. I began to really know her. Well, that was 37 years ago. And I can say, I know her so much better now than I did back then. I knew a lot about her. I mean, I knew her well enough to say, man, I'd love to have your hand in marriage. Let's live our entire life together. But over 37 years, going through the things of life, great, amazing, exciting things and really hard things, Together. I knew, I know my wife even better now than I did back then, and I love her even more. So my knowledge of her grew as we lived life together. One of the things I didn't know back then, I had no way to know, was what a great pastor's wife she would make. That's a good place for an amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. She's on the road right now. Last time I checked on the brakes. She was in St. Charles, Iowa. Driving with our daughter and grandbaby from Texas. They're moving up to Wisconsin. Back to Wisconsin this weekend. So they're going to be closer by. Um, my son-in-law is, is bringing the plane back. And so they left yesterday. And they'll get up there hopefully this evening. But I grew in my knowledge of her by spending time with her. Now with this in mind. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. These words that he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's a man who experienced God in some amazing, unique ways. He's on the road when the risen Lord appeared to him, knocked him flat on his back with a blinding light. He served the Lord in mission for 30 years, prayerfully walking alongside the Lord. He experienced him in some incredible ways. And despite all that, he says, I want to know Christ. It's not that he didn't know him. What he's saying is, I want to know him more and more and more. I want to grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ. What well, is sad to think about the flip side of that, there are many people who on that final day will stand before the Lord and they'll hear these words, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not like I didn't know your name, but I didn't know you. We didn't have a close personal relationship. You had no desire to spend time with me, to learn from me, to be blessed by me, to be led by me. You had no desire for any of that. You put other things and other people as a higher priority again and again and again. You worship those things away from me. I didn't know you. See, I think the greatest evil would be to force a person Who chooses to live their life apart from God. To force that person to spend eternity with him. God won't do that. He'll honor their choice. I didn't know you. Those those will be tragic words. So do you know the Lord in a close personal way A way that is indicative of salvation. And are you growing in that knowledge more and more and more every day? Or do you just know some things about him? There's a really big difference there. And so, how do we know? How do we know how well we know the Lord? How do we know intellectually if we know him relationally? Well, there's a really clear answer in verse 3. It says, we know intellectually that we have come to know him relationally. Oh, I'm off on the slides this morning. Sorry. We know intellectually that we have come to know him relationally if we obey his commandments. That's how. If we obey his commandments. Now, don't get crossed up here. Don't confuse the occurrence of salvation with the assurance of salvation. Okay, this is not saying we will be saved if we obey him. It's saying we will know that we're already saved by our obedience. It's the assurance that it's talking about. So some of you may be familiar with the um, evangelism training material called Evangelism Explosion. Has anybody ever been through that class? It goes back a few years. I thought it was really good curriculum. And it's in the process of witnessing to somebody, you ask two diagnostic questions. And so the first diagnostic question is this. It's one that I kind of asked this morning. Have you come to the place in your life where you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? That's the first question And then the second question is, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, notice that the first question deals with the assurance of salvation. And the second question deals more with the occurrence, whether or not we're actually saved. And so a person's answer to these two questions can tell you a lot about where they are in relationship to the Lord. And they're generally going to fall into one of four categories. And how you share or witness to them will depend on their answers. So let's look at those categories. Um, They might, first of all, say, well, no, I don't have any assurance of my salvation. I don't think I'll be in heaven with the Lord. And they cannot articulate the gospel when you ask them, what would you say to the Lord if he said, why Should I let you into my heaven? I I don't know. I have no idea. Well, that's indicative of an unbeliever. A second person might say, yes, I I know I'm going to be in heaven. But when you ask them what they would say to the Lord, they cannot articulate the true gospel. Oftentimes, it's something like, I've been a good person. I've gone to church almost every Sunday all my life. I was baptized as an infant. I tithe and they start talking about all of these deeds that they do you never hear anything about I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ I don't deserve to be there but I'm trusting in what he's done for me I'm saved by grace through faith he's my savior you don't hear any of that it's what I've done that's a workspace salvation It's no salvation at all. And so that person is actually not a believer, even though they may think, they may feel like they have the assurance of heaven. The the third category that you might see is somebody who says, no, I don't think I will be in heaven. But yet they're able to articulate the gospel clearly. This would be a believer who simply doesn't have the assurance of their salvation. This would be somebody that needs to study 1 John, for instance, so that they may know that they have eternal life. They know the gospel. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I fellowship with him in prayer. I study his word, but I just, I don't know. I, can't, I don't think I'll be in heaven. So that's somebody who very well may be saved, but just needs assurance of their salvation. And then a fourth one, you know, yes, they have assurance of their salvation and they can articulate the gospel, what it is they're trusting in. And that's most likely a person who is, in fact, a believer. So these two different things, keep in mind, salvation is an either or. It's one or the other. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. (laughs) That sounds kind of harsh, but there's no in between. You're either saved or you're not. You're for him or you're against him, Jesus said. But assurance of your salvation is not the same. There's a bit of a spectrum there. As we saw, you could be a believer who doesn't have that confident assurance. That's why this text was written. You could be an unbeliever who thinks they're going to be in heaven, but they're mistaken, they're misled. So there can be a range of assurance. And so in verse three of our text, this assurance comes from obedience, not salvation, but the assurance that we are in fact saved. It says again, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. Now, why would these two be interrelated? Why would obedience have anything to do with the fact of our salvation? And it's this, because the things that God calls us to do and to be can only be achieved by his Holy Spirit in us. That's the only way we can do these things. See, a man without the Spirit has no desire to do the things of the Lord and no power to do the things of the Lord. But the man or woman with the Spirit of the living God in him or her has the ability, the power, they've got a new heart a new set of motives, and ability to follow God. So, you know, there's several verses in scripture that say it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who equips us with everything good for doing his will through Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So... These things that God calls us to, we can only do them by the power of the Holy Spirit who is within us. So our obedience becomes the evidence that we know him. It's the evidence that his Holy Spirit is within us and that we have eternal life. Later on in this same letter, we're going to see in 1 John chapter 4, it'll say, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That's the evidence that we're saved there. So if you take this 1 John 4.13, which we're going to come to in the verse we're in this morning, 1 John 2.3, and you put them together, you have four elements surrounding them. And they are salvation, which results in the indwelling spirit of God, which leads to obedience, which gives us the assurance of salvation. See how that works? Obedience doesn't lead to salvation. No. Salvation is by grace through faith. But when we're saved, the Spirit comes in and the Spirit changes us and enables us. He gives us the power and the will to do what God has called us to do. That's obedience. And then through that obedience, we see that in our lives. Not perfect obedience. We'll talk about that but a desire to follow God and we're faithfully pursuing that obedience and the result then it's an evidence of salvation. We can have that assurance. So this again is why verse 3 says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. Does that make sense? All right, let's look next then at the nature of obedience. Verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, here's a question. How important do you think obedience is in the Christian life? Scale of 1 to 10, how important is obedience? Do we focus on it very much? We asked this question in the Recalibrate Men's study yesterday morning. How important is obedience, especially since we're saved by grace through faith, not of works? So how important is obedience? Well, let me, in answering that, let me just read some passages and just kind of soak this in a little bit. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know this, the Great Commission, but... Listen, what's also in it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do what? Obey everything I have commanded you. Obedience. John 14, 21 Whoever has my commands and obeys them he is the one who loves me he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him Luke 5 Luke 6:46 Why do you call me lord lord and not do what I say That's Jesus Jesus in John 15:20 in John 15:10 If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Titus 1.16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 1.25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. How important is obedience according to the word of the Lord? Pretty important, isn't it? On a scale of 1 to 10, I think I'd have to give it a 9 or a 10 because if there is no obedience, there's no love of God and no evidence of salvation. Is what these verses would say. And I think you could also say. That if there's little obedience. There's little love of God. And little assurance of salvation. So verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word. God's love is truly made complete in him. Notice the second word in that verse. It's if. But if anyone obeys his word. Does God give us a choice in whether we obey Him or not? Yeah, we get to make that choice day by day, minute by minute. Whatever your thoughts on the sovereignty of God, just a caution don't formulate your understanding of the sovereignty of God in such a way that it takes away your choice. And your responsibility in obedience. That's squarely in our lap. That's why God can hold us responsible for what we do or do not do. Because we make that choice. So, he gives us the freedom to choose whether or not we will obey him. Think back to this week. What are some things maybe that you did that you would say are in obedience to the word of God that pleased him? And you probably made a conscious choice to do some of those things. And now think back. What are some things that maybe you chose to do? Nobody forced you, I hope. But you chose to do some things that were in disobedience to God and his word. We make those choices moment by moment. So. This, in fact, think about the fall of mankind in the garden. God didn't cause that. They chose to rebel, to disobey God. And later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God's speaking of obedience when he says in verses 19 and 20, he says, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Choose that path of obedience. In Joshua 24, 15, it says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's a choice we make, to walk in obedience to God. Now, we can't do it on our own. We already said that. But when God's Spirit comes in and changes our heart and empowers us, we have the ability to obey God. But we still have to make that choice to do so. Because we have our our new self and our old self, the spirit and the flesh. We can walk in the light or we can walk in the darkness. And you see that contrast throughout the New Testament. So God gives us the freedom whether or not to obey him. And we make those choices every day. But what is it that motivates our decision to obey or not to obey? Well, I heard about a wedding rehearsal where the groom had a strange request to the pastor. He said, "Look, when you come to my part of the vows, and they, and they say that I must love and honor and obey and 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 like reserve myself wholly for her." He didn't really understand the obey part isn't in the guy's vows, but he thought they were. And so, would you just? Keep that part out. He says, I mean I'll pay you hundred dollars if you just don't include that part in my vows. So he slips him the money and he goes away kind of satisfied. Well, the wedding comes along the next day and when he gets to the man's vows, the pastor looks him right in the eye and he says, will you promise to prostrate yourself before her? Obey her every command and wish, serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life and swear eternally before God that your lovely wife that you will, to your lovely wife that you will never even look at another woman with lust as long as you both shall live. And in a small voice, he said, yes. (laughs) then the groom leans leans in toward the pastor and he says what's this I thought we had an agreement and the pastor puts the hundred dollars back in his hand and says she made me a much better offer (laughs) what motivates our obedience what is it I think there's three things that can motivate our obedience we can obey because we have to We can obey because we need to, and we can obey because we want to. Think about obeying because we have to. That's a slave. They really have little choice. If they don't obey, they're going to suffer a very harsh consequence of that. But what about obeying because we need to? That's kind of like an employee. It doesn't matter if we like our job or not. If we want to get up tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. and be in the office by 8 and do our job. It doesn't matter. We need the paycheck. We need to support our family. So we obey the instructions of our employer because we need to. But there's another type of obedience. And that's because we want to. This is a type of obedience that should be indicative of a believer. We should be obeying God Because we want to. We should obey because we have this relationship with the Lord. That's grown deeper and deeper and deeper. Now God could exercise his power in such a way that he just like beams down from heaven. You either obey me or you're toast. God could do that. And I think man would probably respond to that, many would. Some would probably still shake their fists at him. But that's not the kind of response God wants. He doesn't want a response based on desperation. He wants a love response from us. That's what he's looking for. So John 1421 says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. This is what God wants obedience rooted in love. No, when we love God and obey his word, God's love is truly made complete in us. That's what the passage says. Your translation might say it's perfected. In other words, it's made manifest. The love of God is seen in us. We become a reflection of God himself. We're his image bearers. That's the reason he made us, to bear the image of God. And so people should see his love and his character in us. Now, a few years back, there was a song by the, the J. Weeks band, um, J.J. Weeks band, actually. And I remember Elizabeth did this one Sunday, and I just, I just loved this song. And it's called, Let Them See You. And the chorus says this, let them see you in me. Let them hear you when I speak. Let them feel you when I sing. Let them see you. Let them see you in me. Isn't that beautiful? That's what a believer should want. I want the world to see God in me. I want them to see his love made manifest, perfected in me. That comes through obedience. This is my hope. This is what I want. I hope it's what you want too, that the world would see God, see the character of God the love of God, the compassion, the kindness, the goodness of God in us. That's only going to happen through obedience. So verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. So let's look finally at the narrow way of Jesus. And this is going to be verse 6. It actually, the the verse break is in a bad place. The end of verse five is really part of the same sentence. So let's pick it up there. Together, they read, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, verse five and six, they use this phrase in him three times. But the first in him is referring to in us, in believers. And you'll see that there. Um, in verse 5 but then the second and third times it's referring to us being in him in Jesus so when we obey his love is made perfect a person who obeys his love is made perfect in him that's the believer but then whoever claims to be in him that's speaking of the believer in Christ now this is kind of a different language here the believer being in Christ, Christ being in the believer, it speaks to that close, interwoven, personal relationship that a believer has with God. And think of what it means to be in Christ, just some of what that means. I just pulled up a few verses here, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Praise God. Ephesians 1.3 He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Philippians 4.19 And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So, to be in Christ to be forgiven and to be, to be saved and to be blessed beyond all imagining. To have an inheritance in heaven. And we know Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. So it's a narrow gate, the way to eternal life. It's only if we're in Christ. So how can we know with absolute certainty that we are on that narrow path, that we are in him. Well, the end of verse five and verse six tell us. Again, it says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's going full circle. It's coming back to obedience again, isn't it? That's how we know that we are in Christ, that we are saved. We must live as Jesus did. We must follow him. We must walk in the light, it said in chapter 1. So it comes back once again to obedience. Now again, it's not talking about obedience as a means of salvation. It's talking about obedience as an assurance of salvation. So this is how we know that we are in him. When a pilot lands an airplane, he has to set it down on a pretty narrow piece of pavement. Think about it, you fly hundreds, even thousands of miles and you have to land on a strip of asphalt that at O'Hare it averages about 150 feet wide. Anything else is going to be disastrous. You got to put it down on a mile and a half long strip of pavement 150 feet wide. One of the, the narrowest airstrips I ever landed on was in Sudan, Texas. Deborah and maybe Amber will remember it well. That airstrip is 20 feet wide. My wingspan was like 35, 36 feet. The wings overhung both, both sides and the wheels were only a couple feet from the edge of the runway. You had to be right on path or you get off in the, who knows what would happen then. So the runway is narrow And we have to be right in the middle of it. Now, imagine making an approach to a runway when you can't see anything at all. Pilots do it all the time. It's called an instrument approach. You have to follow signals from the instruments that will tell you where you are relative to where you should be. And so you have to stay precisely on that narrow path. And as you get closer and closer to the runway, the path gets narrower and narrower. It's like a long elongated funnel, you see it on the diagram on the left, kind of like an arrow. But what would happen if the instruments that guide you were to fail? What if you had an electrical failure? Something like that. Well, we keep a backup battery-powered radio, but how would you navigate to the runway? You can't even see it. Well, thankfully, they have a backup plan, and it's called a PAR approach or it's called a precision approach radar. Now, I picked this picture of the controller. Who does that remind you of? Ryan. (laughs) Yeah, Ryan's an air traffic controller. There's a PAR approach. And this is something where they control you. They give you instructions from the ground because you have no instrumentation to know where the airport or the runway is. So the controller is looking at a very special piece of radar equipment and he's giving you verbal instructions to which you must respond and apply you must follow very very precisely now it starts off kind of broad to get you in the area of the airport but as you start honing in on the runway the instructions become more precise and more frequent and so a PAR approach might sound something like this three miles from touchdown right of course diverging turn left heading 252 degrees slightly right of course you're correcting Turn right, 255 degrees, slightly above glide path, coming down slowly. He's telling you where you are in in relation to where you need to be. And it just keeps getting more and more frequent and more um, accurate. Slightly above glide path, coming down slowly, right of course, holding, turn left, 250 degrees. A pilot doesn't even have time to respond, he just listens to the instruction, and makes minute corrections to the airplane, seeing nothing out the window and not seeing any guidance other than his magnetic compass heading on on, on the panel. Slightly right, of course, correcting, turn right 252 degrees on glide path. Slightly left, of course, correcting, turn left 250, one half mile from touchdown. And the instructions just keep coming. The pilot has to follow these instructions immediately and precisely because they're guiding him down to a very narrow piece of pavement. If he misses that, again, it's it's disastrous. Isn't this a little bit like our Christian life? Shouldn't we be listening to his instructions and obeying them closely and making frequent course corrections? Now keep in mind, the pilot flying his PAR approach is never exactly on course for very long. If he is, he's simply flying through it as he diverges the other direction. So the controller turns him back, and he tries to intercept it, and he's never gonna be perfectly on approach. But it's a series of corrections always pointing him back to where he should be. You're slightly high. You need to increase the descent rate. You're slightly right, of course, and diverging. Turn left. You're now left, of course. Turn right. Just like that. That's how our Christian life should be. We should be listening to every instruction of the Lord. And honing in closer and closer and closer to the center of his will. That's obedience. That's what God wants from us. That's what enables people to see God in us. That's when we become a real reflection of who he is, his character. Well, last week we talked about sin and forgiveness. Remember, if you were here, sin is to miss the mark. You're not on course. You're not going the direction God wants. It's anything that falls short of his perfect righteous will. And that can be that path. Sin is anything that misses the mark. And we also saw that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, to confess means to say the same thing as. So we see sin the way God sees sin. And so as a wrap-up, this is where I hope to pull all this together. As we grow in our relationship with God, the Lord we get to know him more and more and more as we talked about we get to know the beauty of who he is the beauty of what he's done for us and we love him more and more and more and our response to that is we want to obey him we want to obey this loving God now here's a key As our relationship with God changes, so does our relationship with sin. Think about that for a minute. We no longer brag about it. We no longer plan for it. We no longer enjoy it the way we once did. We're shamed of it. We're kind of haunted by it we're appalled at our own behavior when we sin and so we confess it god that that i did that was so wrong in your eyes and we what we repent we make a correction we change direction to get back on course this comes Willingly as we grow closer and closer to the Lord. As we fall more and more in love with him. As we grow in relationship with God. We turn away from our sin. And we obey God. Not because we have to. But because we want to. And this then. Is how we know. That we know him. It's through the obedience. So are we obeying God because we have to? Or are we obeying God because we want to? And if we're struggling in this area of obedience, then it's probably saying that our relationship with God is not where it should be. We're not spending that time with him. We're not fellowshipping. We're not going through life together. We're like two married people cohabitating but not really living life together. So God wants a close personal relationship where we're listening, we're worshiping, we're fellowshipping with him, we're enjoying him, we're hearing from him, we're receiving his instructions, we're obeying him. That's what God wants. And the whole point of this passage, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is pretty clear It's not very pretty where it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And you, God, laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the price for our forgiveness. And so we owe it all to him. And God, may this be our cry. I want to know Christ. I want to know him personally. I want to surrender my whole life to him. I want to fall deeper and deeper in love with this awesome God. Let it be the desire of my heart to follow him closely, step-by-step step, listening, responding in obedience, confessing when necessary, making course corrections. God, I want to be in the center of your will. And God, I pray that through this, through this obedience, that you would give each one of us the absolute certainty of our salvation. And so, God, we pray this as we're enabled in the name of Jesus Christ by what he's done for us. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.